the blessedness of this hour continues to be a great one indeed. I realize, and certainly we each do, how that God has showered upon us and favored us with the measure of health and with the measure of the other matters in life that have allowed us to gather today. And we're so very thankful for the goodness of God as shown to us in ways like this. Are we not reminded in James 1, verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. As we come to our lesson today, and a consideration of effectiveness. I realize full well that each of us, no doubt, has some interest in effectiveness. We wish to be effective in the various avenues of our life, be it in our workplace, be it in the duties and obligations connected to our family. We want to be a person that's effective. In fact, there are those who make a great deal of money in our land, who go about the country and give speeches and lectures on how to be effective and how to properly be a person carrying out the various duties and avenues of life. Today, I thought we would ask this question, what needs to be done to make an effective church? If the Pippin Church of Christ, you and I, would wish to be effective in 2024, what are some things that need to bubble to the top of the list to ensure that we will be in that very category. Over the next few moments today, let's give some thought to that using the Word of God as our guide. And what we shall recognize and find is a list of things that will be certain and guaranteed to generate for us the effectiveness which God would desire us to, in fact, exhibit. As we do that, you may come to the close of that slide, and I've just asked us a question. What are some biblical guidelines? some biblical qualities involved in being effective. Number one, could we begin with perhaps the most fundamental and the most basic of our considerations? Jesus Christ must be the center of not only that which we hope to be, but what we are. I've listed for you a number of scriptures, and as you and I step through them, May we appreciate the fact that Jesus is in fact the hub and must be, and you and I are the spokes that emanate from Him. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, are we not reminded there that this Jesus, this wonderful Creator, is in fact that? All things were made by Him, all things were made for Him, and He in fact sustains, and it is in Him that all things consist. Colossians 1, 17. Now, that not only must be true of this materialistic world, what about our life, the very fabric of the foundation of our congregation? In Colossians 1, verse 18, He is the head of the church. That He is Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He is the firstborn, if you please. And He goes on to be expressed in that particular statement, He must have all preeminence. That word preeminence means to be of the first rank, to be elevated above one and all. And so it is that Jesus Christ must be the center of what this congregation would wish to be and everything that we hope to accomplish. Certainly, I know our elders look with great favor upon the thought of for any program or any particular choice or pursuit that we make, does this amplify the cause of Christ? Does this elevate the matter of His kingdom? 
But not only must that be true of our elders' decisions, what about you and me individually? As we go about our daily life, am I a beacon for the Lord? Do I set an example such that others could see Christ living in me? Doesn't Galatians 2 verse 20 mandate that of us? Paul on that occasion would write, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Isn't it true, then, in light of statements such as that one? It only challenges us with the next one. If it is the case, then, that Jesus is described in these ways, could we borrow an expression or two the Lord Himself made? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. When Jesus made that statement in John 14, verse number 6, you may recall that that was just a few hours prior to His crucifixion. And on that night, as He would embed in the thinking of those apostles, some matters, no doubt, they'd never forget. One of the issues was the centrality of Him. I am the way, He would say. I am the truth, He would say. And I am the life. For you and I to realize that as Christians, we, of course, follow in His steps. And it's our desire that we, too, would be those that mimic that very same truth. When Jesus made that statement, doesn't it remind us of the way in which the Apostle Paul developed and the way he connected to it as well? I've asked you to consider 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse number 1. It was at that time that Paul would say, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Many things might be said about that little passage, but surely one of them must be this. Paul said, When I came into the city in which you now live, there are many things about which I might have spoken. We could talk about the weather. We could talk about the latest Grecian philosophy. We could talk about the Stoics and the Epicureans and what they lately have considered important. But you know what? None of that matters a bit. I determined to know nothing among you but what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May I say that even though 20 centuries almost have come and gone since Paul made that statement, not the slightest bit of its urgency has changed. You and I today in the year 2024, in our lives, in Putnam County, wherever you and I may proceed in the matters of our life, we too must be determined to amplify and elevate the cause of Christ for nothing else eternally has anywhere near the same significance. As you and I close that slide, then isn't it true that the Lord Jesus Christ should be the center of what this church is and what this church hopes to be. Christ is our life, Colossians 2, verse 3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him, Colossians 2, verse 3, as well as Colossians 2, verse number 10. What's next? If that's one rule of thumb that will be a powerful one for us to be an effective church, what about number two? A congregation of people that are as effective as the Lord might wish that they could be will be a congregation 
that has a tremendous and deep-seated respect for the authority of the Word of God, the authority of Scripture. We read in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Among the matters that are highlighted for us in verse 16 is the fact that the Word of God is profitable for a number of things, and this list is provided profitable for doctrine. Have you ever thought about the fact that many times in the Bible, doctrines are referenced, plural. But in a verse like this, doctrine, singular, is referenced. I wonder what the difference is. Oh, we could easily appreciate it based on these passages. The doctrine of God is a singular presentation of that truth anchored in what He has revealed to us. There are many doctrines of men. Because men teach whatever they like, I suppose. Men can be motivated and moved by convenience and preference and otherwise, and they can often come up with their doctrine. And so Jesus would say in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, that when you and I follow the doctrines of men, our worship is vain. Anytime we substitute a thus saith the Lord out and put in its place something that men have asserted, we have erred tremendously. Isn't it interesting then that the Word of God encourages us that as an effective church, we are those that will greatly respect and revere the characteristics of that authority in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 10, we are, come, we are in a position to notice that a very beautiful adjective is used to describe the Word of God. It is called perfect. It is called perfect. There are no changes that need to be made to it. There are no alterations that need to be brought before it. There are no appendices to add certain things to it because the passing of time has made it obsolete. The Word of God is living and active, Hebrews 4 verse 12. It will endure to the end of time, 1 Peter 1 it is that unalterable, unchangeable presentation of the God of heaven. In that text that we noted in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, Paul pointed out there that there are certain things that would pass away, those spiritual gifts, those miraculous matters, you see. But he pointed out in such exquisite beauty that this will remain. I hope you and I then recognize that as we begin this year, 2024, only a few days into it now, we realize that to be effective, indeed, Jesus must be the center, of course. But you and I must have an uncompromising consideration and respect for the authority of the Word which He has sent us. Jesus doesn't communicate with us today in smooth, small, still voices. He just doesn't do that. We are told in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, that God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by His Son. And so this last will and testament of Jesus Christ, this which is His gospel, the gospel of Christ, Romans 1.16, this is how He communicates with us. 
Oh, how we must respect it and appreciate that we are not left to our devices. Further on that slide, isn't it a warning to one and all? In 2 John verses 9, 10, and 11, what happens when you do not honor it? And what happens when you choose to go beyond it? The inspired apostle pointed out that anybody who transgresses and goes beyond it does not have Christ and does not have God. That's a serious consequence, isn't it? You and I respect the Word of God. No wonder then we allow it to be the center of much of what guides us every time we assemble. We devote periods of study of it in Bible study period. During our worship service, we have songs that are patterned after it. We devote a period of sermon, if you please, that, that's based upon it. And we use it. You may notice the gentlemen that lead us in light of the Lord's Supper, they will turn our attention to the Bible to remind us of what the Lord accomplished and what He endured in those moments, of course, surrounding the cross. All the while, the Word of God challenges us and uplifts us. As you close that particular slide with me, how devoted then are you and I to it? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and fear to borrow the words of 1 Peter 3.15. And thus, the Word of God is that foundational matter that you and I can use to not only encourage our faith, but also to help encourage that in others. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So far, we've looked at these two. I wonder if there are other things the Word of God might challenge us with. Could I invite you to consider number three? An effective church will not only be a church that, of course, radiates outward from Christ. Christ is the center. Not only must that effective church, if it is to be so, not only will it be such that it respects the authority of Scripture, we must give some thought to her leadership. We knew that something like this would have to appear because you and I have seen it far too often in the matters of men. What happens to any organization of men if the leadership is weak? If the leadership is not convinced of the mission? If the leadership is distracted to the point where pursuit of other things takes center stage, we all know that organization will be weak. They will fall far beneath accomplishing their mission. They will pursue other things. That's true in a family. That's true in a corporation. That's true in a business. That can be true of the church. And so by way of the presentation of the New Testament, we learn then that it is the case that to be an effective church, she must have strong leadership. May I say, we aren't talking about the Lord. We know He's the head, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. We know that He is the one that has given the authority and the matters connected to the teaching. But isn't it true He has delegated men, certain men that they might hold the office of an elder. And it is they who are given the express responsibility to provide the leadership on earth for that group of people. After all, they are called the pastors. 
they're the shepherds. They're the ones leading the sheep. And so you and I as sheep are following the shepherds, our shepherds. And so isn't it true that any congregation that is going to be effective will need strength in leadership? Look at some of these verses with me, would you? In 1 Peter chapter 5, in fact, the first four verses of that chapter, but we are there correctly told that one of the responsibilities of those elders is that they would feed the flock. They are given a commandment to feed the flock. Now, they're not supposed to feed them the latest Reader's Digest, and they're not given the authority to feed them the latest National Geographic. They are told to feed them with those unsearchable riches, which is the matter of God, to feed the flock with those wholesome matters to support their faith and to lead men and women to heaven. To feed the flock, again, elders must be carefully considerate of the fact that the Word of God is the basis for what's presented, for what motivates the lives of those sheep. And they are concerned then about the nature of the Word of God as it's a part of the lives of those sheep. To feed the flock. Highlighted in that verse we just noted, doesn't it remind us of others in which preachers were told in that light as well? And so isn't it true that elders, one of their prime concerns will be the individual spiritual success of the sheep. But oh, how they're keenly, keenly considerate of what that preacher is preaching. They want nobody that's teaching anything other than the truth. And they want nobody to influence the lives of those sheep other than somebody who will motivate their faith in ways that are godly. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul thus told Timothy, and you and I remember, Timothy was stationed at Ephesus, and Ephesus had elders. The congregation at Ephesus was blessed with elders. And yet Timothy was told, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Paul thus warned Timothy, if people are left to their own, if they're left in a weakness, if you please, concerning leadership, and even then sometimes the devil will find ways to motivate them in such a way that they will pursue itching ears and they will start to follow what's not the truth. And so, feed the flock. Another passage I've asked you to consider that light is this one. In Acts 20, beginning in verse 28. And don't you find it interesting that Timothy, again, who was at the congregation at Ephesus, was told to preach the word, and to the elders of the church at Ephesus, they were told this, Take heed to yourselves. And to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. And so notice, the elders were told to feed the flock. Timothy was told to feed the flock. And their message of feeding was, of course, beautifully harmonious. Because in the verses that follow, Acts 20, verses 29 and following, those elders were told that among you there are going to arise men who will in fact lead astray. They're not going to be anchored as strongly as they should be. 
and the kind of evil that's going to be prompted would be very disastrous. To be effective, a congregation needs strong leadership, biblically based and sound. Do you recall some of the qualifications of elders? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in Titus chapter 1, as elders and their qualifications are described, you may recall that Titus in particular says, their conviction in the Word should be so strong they can convince the gainsayers. Those who might be naysayers and whose faith might be quite weak, these elders and their strength of faith could help encourage and to change their mind. You see, strong leadership is going to be required. A part of what those elders will do is oppose error. When when error arises, and you and I know it's all around us, our world is filled with things which men have thought that they could do better than God. And so they've tried to change worship or change the plan of salvation or change other attributes of the church. Elders need to have the courage and conviction to rise up and say, that's not going to happen here. We will not tolerate that. We'd love to study with you. We'd love to help you have a better understanding of the Word of God, but what you're teaching and upholding, we are not going to allow you to cause shipwreck to the faith of the members of this church. Perhaps you remember that story told a number of years ago. There was a congregation in the state of Alabama, as best I recall, who had a gospel meeting. And they, of course, invited a speaker to come, as we seemingly always do for gospel meetings. And this person who came had some ways of thinking which were not exactly on target. The elders even previously had some understanding of that and had a discussion with him prior to the meeting. Now, we want it to be known that you are not to teach that kind of thing here. As long as you'll preach the gospel of Christ, we will support you, and this meeting will be grand. But let it be known, we do not want anything taught about this kind of party idea that you've got concerning this philosophy. The meeting got underway and started well, but the time came that the guy got worked up one night. He began to move in direction in which those kind of thoughts were now coming to the forefront, An elder stood up and right in the middle of the sermon walked to the front and brought that sermon to a conclusion at that point and said, this service is now over. And so is the gospel meeting. Those elders, you see, had the nerve to stand up and oppose error when they heard it. Aren't we thankful for men like that? For those who love the souls of those who are their sheep enough to where they're not let them be shipwrecked by these ideas of men. I've mentioned the word shipwreck. The Bible uses that term. I've asked you to notice in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, chapters 1 and, and again later in the book, Paul has mentioned for all these ages those who had made shipwreck of their faith. You and I don't want that to happen to us. We don't want it to happen to anybody else either. And so we are thankful for a strong leadership who will safeguard the souls of men and women. What about a fourth idea to make an effective church? They have a great concern, a very deep-seated concern over the souls of people. 
You know, you and I have been so honored and blessed. We have come to the gospel. We know what blessing is in it, and we appreciate the reward connected to it and the promise of God to those who, of course, are faithful to His Word. But we also know that there are so many, and they are our acquaintances and friends, sometimes family and otherwise, and they are not Christians, and they are not those who follow the Lord. An effective church will be concerned about them. Look at some of the statements, if you would, on that slide. Isn't it true that there are many things that the human family can sometimes use to motivate things? It might be popularity. It might be convenience. It might be any number of other things, but yet the church is intensely interested in the salvation of souls. Concerned with souls might take us to verses such as these. In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, Jesus, as he spoke at that particular moment, brought to the attention of those of that day, what shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And did he not later with a nail-pierced hand point to a world and say, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That challenge of Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, we sometimes call the Great Commission, but we certainly take seriously the urging in the direction of the concern for the souls of people. And so at this congregation, we try to always, during our services, encourage the reality of being right with God. And if someone is not in that condition, to urge them to be thoughtful about that to be thoughtful about that state of affairs. We have radio programs that we sponsor with the hope that that message of Christ can go near and far. We sponsor missionaries who labor in various continents besides this one, all the while striving that souls might come to know the blessed Savior, Jesus the Christ, and that they might come to bring their life into compliance with what He would desire. You may notice furthermore on that slide that 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16 told us Paul's own words, Woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel. That sentiment is not only needful for a preacher, but yet each of us in the characteristic ways that might be our own possibility. That certainly will mean we should set good examples of Christianity motivating others to appreciate that which, again, causes us to do what we do. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 3, I remind all of us that our opposition will be fierce because the God of this world will not like it. He doesn't want us to be too concerned with souls. Finally, in Luke 3, verses 30 and following, we notice that Jesus Himself went about preaching, and there were times that he would in fact move from one village or city to another one, despite the fact there was some success in the first one. Why? Because they need to hear the gospel too. So you and I desire to appreciate some of these things so far as important and as needful. And let's look at one more. What else will make a successful congregation? There is a realization that there is a difference 
between opinion and command. And this very issue has caused a great deal of trouble. Because there have been times that men have elevated their opinion equal to the commands of God, and that's not good. And so you and I realize that that kind of danger is the very issue I invited you to consider here. Many, many have been the congregations who have run into problems due to this one. That somebody or some group of people have thought that they had the prerogative to legislate for God and that their opinion was more than just speculation. It was to be treated as equal to Scripture. When all the while that isn't so, there could be no compromise of the Word of God. But my opinion is only that. And the same is true of you. There are some matters, of course, about which God has revealed, and we have no question about this. The Lord's Supper is not to be taken on Tuesdays. We have no authority for that. It is to be taken on the first day of the week. I don't care how spiritual or bright otherwise a man or group of men may be, if they try to encourage us to take the Lord's Supper on a Tuesday, they are wrong. The elements of the Lord's Supper, the God of heaven has revealed. No authority for putting milk and peach cobbler on the Lord's table. No authority for anything other than the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. You see, those are just some examples, but men have tried to change a lot of things. There are some things, of course, that's been left to us. We choose to meet at 9.30 on Sunday morning. We could meet at 8 o'clock. We could meet at 11.30. That part's not critical. What is critical is we meet. And we do so with the desire to bring about that which is the proper worship to the God of heaven and the other attributes of our service. We choose here to have two songs and then a prayer and then another song. The Bible doesn't command that part. We could have five songs and a prayer, and then two more. God hasn't said about that. We could choose to have the observance of the Lord's Supper, the first part of the worship service at 1030. There wouldn't be a thing wrong with that. Our elders have selected to do it when we do following the sermon. But you see, all of that's fine. But that part, may we never forget, is only a particular tradition or choice of ours the particulars of it could be very different and everything would still be beautifully scriptural. You may notice further on that slide, in recognizing this, this distinction between command and scripture, Paul has reminded all of us in Romans 14 and 15 that when it comes to matters of opinion, we need to appreciate that others may differ from us. And we can all be right with God. But all the while, we certainly would desire to be unified, to be one group together for the Lord, because there is strength in number. No wonder the New Testament so often highlights unity. Did it not do that for us? In verses like Romans 15, verse 6, in verses such as the other unifying passages of 1 Peter chapter 5, as we come near the close of our lesson today, show me an effective church. That's the title I gave to the message. I think you and I could close with Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13, verse 21. 
Brother Greg read that earlier in our service today. And in that passage, we notice the central feature of the Christ and the desire to highlight and elevate the beauty of His death and the gospel, which is His message. To be an effective church, the Pippin congregation would desire to put into place and to put into practice these things we have learned about today. Jesus Christ is our focus and center. Strong leadership that recognizes the power and the authority of Scripture and that also recognizes that command and Scripture are one thing, but the opinions of men are something else. And in our concern for souls, we want all to be saved. In fact, isn't that what God wants? In 1 Timothy 2, verse number 4, God would have all men to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved, but He does allow us to make that decision. Perhaps in the sound of my voice today, there could be one or more who isn't right with God. Maybe you've come to realize that your life, though once a faithful Christian, you're not in the safe folds of faithfulness today. Jesus still loves you. God still loves you. And He wants you to be faithful to His side. May I say to you that the Word of God has addressed that state of affairs, and what you need to do is repent of those sins that separate you from God. Make confession of them. And we'd be honored to approach God in prayer. If you, though, have never become a Christian, never have you named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. Remember, the first point was Jesus has to be the center, and you need to bring Him to the center of your life. You do that by believing in Him, absolutely. Repenting of your sins, making confession of His name, and being baptized. And today, we'd be delighted to assist and to help in bringing you to that point in life. If we could study with you, may I encourage you to talk to one of our elders or to myself. We'd be happy to set up some sessions and opportunities to walk through some things with you. We want you to know the blessedness of what we enjoy. But at today, this is a convenient time, and if we could be of some help at this moment, Brother Kale has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could help you now, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?